The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, put down the Nintendo Wii cheat sheet and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 220 with guest Jack Greenfield, recorded live Tuesday, February 13th, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter, and now bringing the just-in-time team system class with Joel Semeniuk on-site for your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows Forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the MVP who's been MIA since his WII sh- the BED, Carl Franklin. Welcome back. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard here on the Thursday show, second Thursday show, since we went to the two shows a week. I hope... Uh, Everybody has figured out that the two shows on the website are the current two shows that are playing this week. Right. Yeah. How you been, Richard? I've been plunking along, you know, the MVP Summit's an endless adventure. It is an endless adventure. I'm having a lot of fun, and I don't, I'm not even there. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> but you will be soon. Oh, it's just too surreal for me. Uh, let me see. The studio is coming along nicely. We've got, uh... Got some photos up at photos.pwop.com if you want to follow along that story. Nice mess. It's a big mess right now. We're um, Jed, the guy who's uh, doing the contracting work. See, we, we need 14-foot beams because it's a 14-foot ceiling. Wow. Yeah, 14-foot high. And we so the beams are going to go all the way up to the ceiling for the interior walls. And you can't just uh, bring them up the elevator. I'm nope. thinking that would be a little tricky. They're a bit big. Yeah, and uh, carrying 172 14-foot 2x4s up five flights of stairs is also out of the question. So what he did is he built a crane. He built this leveraged crane contraption out of wood that's going to be harnessed to the floor. It's going to stick out the window, and it's got a pulley on the end with a block so it'll, you know, from a sailboat, so it'll take the uh, the gear ratio down. And uh, just drill holes in the wood, loop the rope through them, like six or seven of those beams at a time. Just get some guys, just walk them from one end of the room to the other, you know, pull them up. And how many do you need? 170? 172 beams. Wow. That's a lot. It's a lot of beams. 
So it's fun. I've never done a major construction project. As you know, I, I sit behind a computer and play guitar for a living. You know, I don't, uh, you know. Don't have to deal with this I stuff I don't deal normally. with manual labor. So <laughs> so it's been, a, it's been an educational experience for me. Uh, we got some email here. This one is from Rob Windsor. And, and sorry, Rob, that we didn't get this to uh, out on the show earlier. You sent this on February 10th. But Rob Windsor is our friend up in Toronto. Yes. Uh, he's involved in the community up there, and he's a yeah, huge fan. leader of the Toronto Visual Basic User Group. Yep, and he's a huge fan of the show, always has been. Also a Mondays fan, which not every .NET Rocks fan can say that. Hmm? Well, hmm? with good cause. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't know what we're talking about, don't worry. It's all right. It's all right. So he says, hey, Carl and Richard, first off, sorry I missed you at the Vista launch event in Toronto. I was doing a user group tour out in Western Canada that week. I was listening to your show with Jesse Liberty and Alex Horowitz, and I have to disagree with Jesse's opinion that WPFE and AJAX are technologies for doing exactly the same thing. We've had the ability to use Flash and AJAX for years now, and neither have taken over as a dominant technology because they solve different problems. I think the same holds true for WPFE and AJAX. Moving forward, people will embed WPFE applets inside AJAX-enabled web pages, like the Google Finance example Scott mentioned on Hansel Minutes. Each will have their place, but but one will not supplant the other. Also, the question of when one should choose a smart client over a web app came up. If you control the client desktop and you know they are running Windows, then you should be building smart clients. No matter how good the web development tools get, You'll always be able to build an app that has better performance and usability, and you'll be able to do it in less time. Look forward to seeing you guys at DevTeach in Montreal. Keep on rocking. And I'm looking forward to that, too. Yeah, that's uh, DevTeach in Montreal, May 14th to 18th, our good friend Jean-René Roy. Good conference. If you're anywhere near Montreal, go. Yeah, highly recommended. It's one of those little compact conferences, not huge, and a really astonishingly good speaker list. Uh, Richard, what you got? I have an email from Robert Gelb, and it's his too, and, and he takes his face seriously, but I don't know. When he talks, it sounds like a, a Southern Baptist reverend. It really well, does. Well, you know, he sort of camped it up for that uh, <laughs> that one a code addict grok talk. Right, and it never went away. Well, it was just too perfect. Put your hands on the screen. Put your hands on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I believe Carl mentioned that he immediately turned off UAC and Vista because it is so annoying. I was also ripping my hair out because of it. However, before I completely went bald, I happened upon this blog entry by Tim Sneath, and I've shrinksterized it at shrinkster.com slash MMH, Mike Mike Hotel. Tim Sneath, of course, uh, a Microsofty, but he was an RD before that, wasn't he? I'm not sure, but these days he's the technical evangelist for Vista. Yeah, I so thought if anybody's going to know, it's him. Okay. And the blog entry, I'm not going to go into detail on it, but it shows how to use the local security policy to adjust some UAC behavior without turning it off entirely. Oh, okay. Which is very cool. Very cool. I'll check that out. Yeah, I, I'm definitely not uh, you know, advocating that everybody turn it off, and I think I said that before, too. It's just that uh, it's my opinion that if you know what you're doing and you take appropriate security cautions, uh, you know, within your firewall, then, you know, you have uh, you're more prepared for things that come up. I'm not so worried about email attachments that are gone have gone bad because I don't open email attachments from anyone that I don't know. 
Right. So, so he said, by modifying the security entry using the local security policy editor, uh, when a process is marked for elevation, it needs it, uh, administrator access, it'll be elevated silently. Cool. So that's one of those UACs that really bugs the developer more than anything else. Yeah. Regards, Robert. Thank you, Robert. Very good. And uh, I'd also just like to remind everyone that uh, Greg Brill at Infusion is still hiring. That's right. You heard it right. He's still hiring. He still wants you to come to New York City for a year. Let him pay for your apartment and let him move you down there if you've got the chops and you want to work in a very, very cool environment. New York City. Yes, sir. Come on. Manhattan. How could you say no? You can read all about the deal at shrinkster.com slash kh6. And speaking of gigs, if you live in the Washington, D.C. area and you are an ASP.NET guru, uh, you're serious about ASP.NET, you're a developer, not just a programmer, there's a great uh, opportunity in Washington, D.C. If you live near there, maybe you could uh, they could relocate you if, uh, if you're willing. And uh, if you want more information about that, you can go to shrinkster.com slash mmj and read all about the responsibilities, requirements, and the perks, and all that stuff. And you can awesome. contact us at .NET rocks at franklins.net if you're interested. Okay, Richard, let's uh, introduce Jack. Jack Greenfield is an architect for Enterprise Frameworks and Tools at Microsoft. He was previously chief architect of the Practitioner Desktop Group at Rational Software Corporation and founder and CTO of Inline Software Corporation at Next Computer. Wow, we've had a few people that worked on the Next. At Next Computer, he developed the Enterprise Objects Framework, now a part of Web Objects from Apple Computer. A well-known speaker and writer, he is a co-author of the best-selling and award-winning book, Software Factories, Assembling Applications with Patterns, Models, Frameworks, and Tools, with Keith Short, Steve Cook, and Stuart Kent. He has also contributed to UML, J2EE, and related OMG and JSP specifications. He holds a BS in physics from George Mason University. Please welcome Jack Greenfield. Thank you, Carl. Thank you. Thanks for being on the show. This is uh, the first in uh, a series of at least two or three shows that we want to do with people who are working on software factories. Well, I'm glad to be here. And, of course, software factories is what I spend my time on these days. So I see the phrase industrialized software development, and I don't know that I buy that yet. What are we really talking about here when we say software factories? So that's a great question. The term itself has been highly controversial, and just to give you a little bit of a sense of the kind of controversy it's created, uh, when we first came out with the book, we got ripped on uh, slash dot by, oh, I don't know how many thousand posts. That's expected, though. It's, it is, but... <laughs> Oh, they had a field day with it. And then um, Martin Fowler, who's actually a good friend, actually stood up in front of a large group of people at Uppsala with me right in the front row, sitting in the seat right next to the seat he'd gotten out of, and made made fun of the term. And he and I ended up, well, actually, I ended up pretty mad at him, and we ended up having a... Uh, oh, man, drama. Yeah. So, you know, that's all blown over and we're buddies again. But uh, for a while, the term itself created a lot of con- controversy. And I think, I think it, it did so for the reason that it did for Martin, which is that um, on the face of it, it conjures up in, in many people's minds sort of a rust belt image of smokestacks and, right. and uh, low-wage labor 
and all the sort of negative things associated with industrialization, if you will. Yeah, now, I think very coal factory kind of big wheels turning. Check your brain at the door, punch the buttons. Yeah, indeed, which of course is exactly the opposite of what I'd intended, and that's that's of course why there's a robotic arm on the, on the cover of the book. Mm. Um, I spent a fair amount of time at Next enjoying the work being done in our factory. And in that factory, there were maybe three humans on the floor at any given point in time, and most of them were wearing white lab coats type types of things, carrying clipboards, right? Yeah. They weren't mindless drones pushing parts into sockets. Okay, on the contrary, it was just the opposite. Machines were pushing parts into sockets. And the humans were thinking about how to make better, faster machines, mm. right? Yeah. And I spent a fair amount of time with the team that did the SIM, or Computer Integrated Manufacturing, for the, the factory. And I was just so impressed with the way they viewed the machines as their agents, so to speak, the, the, the tools that would get the job done. And their goal in life was to think about how to build great tools. Yeah. And that really resonated with me, because what we're really trying to address in this, this software factory phenomenon, back to the question of industrialization, is how do we go... How do we go to sort of the next level? Uh, we've had over the last 10 years a series of technologies that were supposed to be silver bullets. I'm talking about things like CORBA and the CORBA component model, mm. which when they first came out were viewed as pretty hot, you know, hot properties. Yeah, I didn't uh, see it as a silver bullet, though, more like a silver block of steel landing on your head. <laughs> <laughs> well, a little bit of metallurgy there. But, I mean, if you, if you look at some of the others in this list, there's things like Java the JDK, J2EE, C-Sharp and .NET, which is still a very hot commodity. Design patterns. You know, how important are design patterns and how much of our mind share uh, did design patterns occupy? Do they still occupy? Agile methods. CMMI from the SCI. UML, mm. RUP, Essential RUP, mm. whatever you like to say about RUP. It's, it's got a fair following out there. RUP, uh, is that an acronym for... The Rational Unified Process. Okay. Right. That's Rational's uh, concepts. Yes. Um, Lifecycle tool suites, uh, notably from Rational IBM and now from Microsoft with Visual Studio Team Suite. Web services. I mean, there's a lot of technologies in this list that, if you step back and look at them, were at the time seen as breakthrough technologies that would really change the outcome. Now, what outcome am I talking about? I'm talking about the fact that building software today is slow costly and expensive and it just is yeah it's also chaotic and you know some of the best breakthroughs have come from embracing the chaos and sort of dealing with the chaos and learning to work with the chaos but frankly we feel that we can and should do better and we think that because we look around at other industries and we see that actually software and i know this is heretical heaven forbid is not that unique <laughs> 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 you know, we flatter ourselves. We think, oh, we're special. You know, because it's just bits, we're special. Yeah. And a lot of people have written a lot of very good things about the, the nature of software and how it affects the way in which we build it. Brian Foote, for example, and Ralph Johnson have written eloquently about the fact that because software is made of bits, we feel the, the permission to change it whenever we want for whatever reason we want to change it. Mm -hmm. and that's certainly part of the problem. Yep. But... At Amen. the end of the day, it's not that different from the kinds of things that people do in creative industries, like uh, make, make movies or songs or things of that nature. It's not even that different 
from the construction of large sort of one-off um, physical things like bridges and skyscrapers. Right. A lot of work goes into the design. You're not going to reuse the, the exact design verbatim, but you're following a general set of principles and, and known good practices, in fact, many enforced by law in their case, mm-hmm. that yield something over the course of a long period of time that costs a lot, takes a long time to construct. I could certainly think of several applications that sort of fall outside the realm of, you know, repetitive pattern-based software, you know, lots of things that are tied tied closer to hardware, that are tied closer to, uh, uh, you know, video, audio, that kind of thing, certainly have, um, you know, tools and patterns that they use. But, you know, some of the stuff that people are inventing out there is is all new. I imagine that, you know, when you say software factories, you're really talking about business software. Uh, or or do your ideas apply to software with a capital S? Well, it, it turns out that um, if you look at any piece of software with a little s, um, it it consists of many, many things. And there's an endless variety of, of pieces of software. In fact, what's What's interesting about software is that we never really invest much in replicating it. So it's not like manufacturing, say, bolts, right? Where you design your bolt, you set up your bolt cutter, and it produces 100,000 bolts, right? Yeah, we can do that with a CD replication machine or a DVD replication machine, and we can print off the manuals. That's not the hard part of software development. It's, it's It's the design of the software, and every application is unique, every piece of software, every driver. Every service, every portal is unique. But the key question is, how unique are they really? Are they completely new? Yeah, it turns out the answer is, of course, no. No, they're not completely new. There's a lot that's common from one to the next. So we're not talking here about cookie-cutter replication of exactly the same bits. We're not even talking about building things that are largely the same and only slightly different. We're talking about things that can differ substantially from one to the next, but which nonetheless has something in common. Right. In fact, and the question is how much how much is how much does any random piece of software have in common with the next random piece of software? Well that's a great question. Um, it turns out that, you know, if you were to sort of randomly look at all software, you you would probably find that they don't have that much in common. They obviously have enough in common that we can run them all on the same kinds of chips for the most part, use the same kinds of 3GLs, whether it be Java or C-sharp or VB.net. These are all languages that provide roughly the same kinds of capabilities to the developer. Right? So they obviously have something in common. What becomes more interesting is to notice that there are families of things. You can say, well, look, web portals are distinctly different than mobile device applications. True. And mobile device applications are distinctly different from, uh, say, first-person shooter video games. Right. Mm-hmm. And those, in turn, are distinctly different from back-office services. Yep. So the moment you start to classify and categorize types of software, you start to get into the interesting space of understanding what we call problem domains. Yeah. A lot of different problem domains out there, right? So the idea that because these things are not all, you know, identical, we can do nothing but craftsmanship, come at each application as if it's a brand new blank sheet of paper, just don't buy it. 
Well, I mean, it's not one or the other, right? I mean, you you certainly aren't going to write every line of code, you know, down to the microprocessor. You're always somewhere in between. You're always leveraging some tool for this process and some tool for that process. And usually what ends up being written is logic and control flow. But you're um, you're actually talking about automating logic and control flow as well? No, I'm not. Look, let's look back at the statement that you just made, which I think is right on the money. Everything is done with some tool or other, right? Now, the question is, why do we have to stop here, so to speak? You know, I, I spent a lot of time doing assembly language programming in years past. And with the assembly language programming, I would set up my own stack frames, set up the frame pointer, push the arguments onto the stack, tear it all down when you ended up the stack frame. I did all the register scoreboarding by hand figuring out what should live in registers and when to move stuff between registers and main memory to get optimal performance. Right. We all agree. (laughs) We don't want to do that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, you laugh. But at the time, there were a lot of people feeling very threatened when C compilers came around. Yeah, I knew some of these people. Yeah, Yeah, I was one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That's what I did for a living, right? The idea that some program could come along and take some very high-level script, which is how we looked at C code. At the time. From that, write a program that could compete with what I could do. It was threatening. In fact, at the time, the C compilers were slow. It took a long time to compile a piece of source code. They produced buggy output. You'd find all kinds of glitches in, in the generated code all the time. Right. Right? And it was highly suboptimal. You'd have to go in there and hand-optimize the result. And then the coup de grace, debugging, all had to be done in assembly language anyway. So why bother? But of course today, and the reason you laugh, is that nobody would even think of trying to outcode a C compiler today. It'd be insane. Mm. You'd lose. You'd totally lose. In fact, you'd, be, you'd probably be fired just for suggesting that you should even try. <laughs> right. And, and so that suggests that it is possible, indeed, to move some of the work that developers do into tools. Now, the question is, what work goes there? Did the advent of C compilers remove all the interesting work from software development? Arguably, it made the work more interesting because I didn't have to build a memory manager anymore. So, so what I'm, my other question is still valid, though, which is, are you, I mean, I can think of a lot of things that I can do with tools, and what I end up with is logic and control flow. And are, are, you, are you looking at that as uh, something to be automated? Well, yes and no. Um, did the C compiler automate logic and control flow for me as an assembly developer? Well, it simplified it, for sure. For sure. So, for example, I used to write my own macros to get structured programming because in raw assembly language, you had to do jumps. Right. And you'd, you'd essentially do comparisons and you'd test the various bits with various jump instructions. Now, the notion of a while loop improved that significantly, or the if statement, right? And furthermore, all the stack frames set up, I mean, there was a certain amount of logic that went into that. So the question is, you know, what logic, what control flow? Is it all the same? Well, in, in particular, what I'm thinking now is, have we reached the ultimate in expressiveness with a language 
of logic and control flow and are now we trying to think of other ways to express that than a language. Is that what you're talking about now? Like some sort of other tool other than a language to write software? Well, that may be part of it, but you can tell that I'm kind of resisting your line of reasoning. Sure. And the reason I'm resisting it is because folks tend to want to take software factories and push it that way to, to, to an extreme and say, oh, you know, you're trying to take all the logic out of it. You're trying to, t- trying to take all the control flow out of it. No, we're not. We're happy to see some code written at the end of the day. Um, how much code sort of remains an interesting question. Let's look at database programming. So we want to reduce it, in other words. Well, what we really want to do is, let me put it to you this way. Let's see how to continuum of mechanisms for variability. Let's go back to my assertion that we can deal with families of applications or families of systems. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, in a given family, what I'm interested in is not the stuff that they all have in common. I don't care about the fact that my web portal runs in the portal server. I do. I have to configure the portal server and so on, but I don't care about the details of how that happens. That's been abstracted. What I care about is what makes my portal unique, the specific web parts, their content, the links they hold, the connections between them, the custom code that runs behind them. That's what's interesting to me. Mm. Now, an awful lot of logic and control flow has been taken away, but not all of it. In fact, the stuff that remains is the stuff that's really... You know, really important. Right. Uh, it's the stuff that, that really matters to the business user. And this is where we sort of have to check our egos at the door. You know, is, is software development all about the developer? No, it's about the domain. About Absolutely. The project. It's about solving the problem. Isn't it? And isn't it about the people who pay the money to get the problem solved? Sure. And their experience and the return they get for what they spend and that kind of thing. So at the end of the day, what we're really trying to do is stop wasting time rebuilding stuff to solve problems that have been solved before. That's what design patterns are really all about. Doug Schmidt, in his, his pattern-oriented software architecture book, says the software industry has a terrible track record of resolving problems that have already been solved, and I completely agree with him. We're just trying to address that issue. What we're trying to do is make it a little more systematic, a little easier to sort of collect knowledge of how to solve certain kinds of problems that tend to recur yeah. in similar circumstances and build solutions that you can package up, whether they be templates, class libraries, model-driven tools, documentation patterns, checklists, whatever it might be. Fair enough. So what are some of the most successful patterns of implementation that, um, that, that work to achieve this goal? Well, um, I've listed some of the kinds of assets that we supply. What, what we're really interested in doing is enabling people to construct reusable software assets, things that will do a certain amount of grunt work on the behalf of, of a user of those assets. You know, a template's a perfect example. If I can expand a template that gets me started, puts in place perhaps a basic project structure with references to some of the right assemblies, yeah. it just saved me a lot of work. We have those. We have templates, right? Yes, we do. We do. And the templates that we have today do get us a certain distance down the road. The issue is that if you sort of look at what we have, it's it's sort of helter-skelter. Mm. It's little bits of this, little bits of that. 
it, it all comes, you know, delivered in, in different form factors and packages. Mm. And there's no way to sort of holistically tie together a bunch of different kinds of reusable assets, templates, patterns, checklists, tools. Cross language, cross platform, cross whatever. Yeah. Well, yeah, and bundle all that stuff up so that it specifically addresses a particular problem. Right now, when you go into Visual Studio and look at templates, it's about building a VB app, not about building a mobile app. Sure, or about building a, a medical software application or this app or that app. So you're saying, hey, why don't we spend some time writing some more detailed templates that actually address specific problems? And there may be thousands of these things. Well, there may be, and I'm saying, well, how hard is it to write a template, and how hard is it to actually deliver the template to the user, and what's the user's experience of sifting through all your mounds of templates at that point? Right. Your thousands of templates. What if the user could say, get a package for building a mobile software application for doctors to combine your medical app idea with the mobile app idea? Doctors want to be able to check in on patient, patient emergencies or something like that. Okay. Lots of people out there building that stuff from scratch by hand. You know, and a, a, another take on this is to do what's already being done, which to a, to a smaller extent isn't as extensible, but is to build applications that are programmable, applications that are extensible, applications that are scriptable, that contain the objects that if you don't like the way the application works, you can, you know, take the, the basic objects and the templates and rework it and rewire it so that it is what you want. Well, exactly. And this is, this is part of where I was, was going with the previous comment, that, that you can start to scale up from, yeah, you look at, at, at Visual Studio, it'll give you a template for a VB app. Big deal, that's one project. What about an app that takes 30 projects or 130 projects? Um, what about all the bits and pieces in that app you know, that might or might not be there, depending on what requirements you do or don't have? You know, you're not going to need one template. You're going to need a set of collaborating templates that can be configured based on some selections that you might make about overall design decisions. Yeah, or, and I think this is where you're ultimately going, or some sort of software that builds the templates based on what you want. Possibly. We can certainly say that we could use a, a model-driven tool that allows me to rapidly capture, if you will, the arguments for the template using a diagram and then have it generate something for me. And maybe I can edit the template on the way so that it's highly customizable, but at the end of the day, I've, I've been uh, working with more automation than if I were just coding it by hand. And I could do that for a whole variety of things, just build quick, cheap, little model-driven tools, assuming I had a tool-building kit that let me do that quickly, which, in fact, we do. Um, I could build all kinds of little graphical languages for all kinds of little tasks. The key is to be able to know which ones I need and how to pull them all together to solve a useful class of problems so that someone who's going out to build X doesn't have to look through a mountain of just random stuff. They can find a package of model-driven tools, templates, guidance, patterns, etc., all around X, whatever X happens to be. Hey, have you ever felt envy for the new slick interfaces introduced in Windows Vista? I'm sure you want to have something similar in your apps as well, but... Unfortunately, it's quite hard to achieve with Windows Forms. Of course, there's WPF, but that's a different story. But wouldn't it be nice if you could have scaling, rotations, animations, alpha blending, gradients, and that kind of stuff in classic Windows Forms? 
Yeah, Windows Forms, which you're all using today. How cool would your applications be then? Well, you can see for yourself. Go ahead and download Telerik RAD Controls Suite for Windows Forms, the first Vista-style controls for Windows Forms. Play with a visual style builder and enjoy interactive design time support, which eliminates the need to write a lot of code. Pick a Vista piece of UI and try to implement it with the Telerik controls. Chances are you could do it. So where's the catch? Probably performance hit, right? Well, not really. The underlying framework is highly optimized to reduce repainting and layout rearrangement. But again, it's best to see for yourself. Why not visit Telerik at www.telerik.com and tell them Carl sent you. Who's the guy who said, Richard, maybe you know, and I think it might have been Scott, who, Scott Hanselman, who brought this to my attention, but somebody said, every problem can be solved with one more layer of indirection. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> well, we're not after that. We're not after that. And in particular, one of the big problems we have with interpretation, you'd mentioned earlier, having applications that are programmable. I'm all for programmable tools, but programmable apps tend to create problems. I, I had the experience of providing a set of frameworks for Fannie Mae when I was chief architect of what they called their object factory back over there in 1995. And it was a useful set of frameworks, very powerful, highly programmable. Nobody knew what to do with them. Right. Essentially, all the, all the logic moved out of the code and into the configuration files. So which, that, that's the rub right there, isn't it? I mean, at least when you start from scratch, you know what you're starting with. And if you start with a template or something that's more complex, you first have to understand the template and understand, you know, the, the, the high-level stuff before you can go in and muck with it. So if there's, if there's one thing that, that I sort of view as a guiding principle in this whole discussion, it's that you never throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's what's getting us to where we are today. We say, well, wait a minute, you know, reuse is too hard. It never happens right. Just chuck it. Just give up. Just give up. You know, trying start to use any, any kind of package knowledge is too hard. Start from scratch. The key is to stop doing that and to say, no, instead of doing that, there are, there are commonalities that we can leverage. I can say for a fact that I can give you a kit of parts for building a web portal that will get you way down the road. Well, we've already seen those. I mean, heck, ASP.NET is pretty amazing right now. Ruby on Rails is pretty amazing. Um and, and those are very much heading in the kind of direction I'm talking about. Yeah. So you know, we're not claiming that factories are new. We're claiming that factories are really okay. a way of looking at something we already do, but sort of turning up the, the volume, if you will, on Fair how enough. to do that. Fair so enough. yes, ASP.NET, Ruby on Rails, um, programming with SQL Server. You know, I used, to, I used to write a lot of data access code by hand. Right, that's all gone. Mm. All the logic, all the control flow that went in that is all gone. I give a declarative ex expression, and the server comes back with data. Okay, and there's a lot you can say about what's good and bad about that, but frankly, you know, people have voted with their dollars to say it's better than spending the time to handwrite data access logic in every application. Mm -hmm. Same thing with GUI builders. You know, I can, I can sit down and build, you know, a, a Windows UI with WPF with tools I can build a web UI with tools much faster than I can by hand. I'm going to hand tune and hand polish and hand finish stuff, but just getting the basic thing whacked out, you know, the tools can do a lot for me. So right. 
we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's always sort of these incremental gains. Now, the key question is to understand what makes certain kinds of, of tools successful and other kinds of tools unsuccessful. It has a lot to do with the amount of variability that we admit. If you think about a, a spectrum, where on one end of the spectrum you've got raw custom coding. No one says anything to you. You start from scratch. On the other end of the spectrum, the other extreme, you have a drop-down list. You pick one of you know, three or five possible values for some property. Okay, and that's, that's all the variability you get to deal with. There's a lot of points on the spectrum between the two extremes. Today, our tendency is to take the stuff that comes from platform vendors on the left and then rush to custom, you know, hand coding from scratch on the right. And we're trying to say, look, it ought to be a continuum. And furthermore, lots of people other than platform vendors should be supplying stuff along the way. People who are closer to the particular problem domain should be supplying custom tools, custom templates, custom patterns, custom architectural styles, which are collections of patterns assembled to make an architectural framework. Right? There's a lot of stuff that can be done by people who know a particular space. Yeah. And, and this, this will work if and only if we get better at packaging up stuff so that other people can use it successfully. I'm not talking about a big repository where you throw all your quote-unquote reusable junk. <laughs> okay, that I got drawers works, like right? that. Never works. We need to find good ways of packaging stuff so that it's easy for people to, A, find, B, understand, C, customize, mm. right? B, snap together with other ones. What if I could give you a factory for building business logic layers and a factory for building data access layers, and you could snap together and create a factory for building three-tiered applications? Have you used uh, tools like Code Rush from Developer no, Express? No, nope. I think you no, might like this, um, as, as a developer anyway. Uh, it's very much template-based with short uh, two- and three-letter templates that expand and allow you to customize simply by tabbing through the code that it generates. You can write the templates yourself. Uh, Codesmith is another one that does... You know Codesmith. Yeah, does yep. sim some similar things. But, yeah, are we moving up the ladder here to from... To ORM, yeah. To, oh, yeah, the ORM, the, the whole code, code generation, generation concept. Yep, seen that. And and the uh, the first one you mentioned, uh, Code Rush, sounds a lot like snippets. In, uh, it is, but Studio. it's uh, much nicer. <laughs> Fair enough. But but bottom line, yeah, there's a lot of things like that. So those are all sort of heading in the right direction. Once again, it's a question of how do you find these things? How how well organized are the the various bits and pieces of the stuff for solving a specific kind of problem? Can you go get a collection of Code Rush templates? that enable you to build a certain style of application, like a mobile app. Hmm. Yes. But, yeah. Yes. yeah. Then, then I would say you've got a factory right there. It's interesting stuff. Um, what are, are there projects at uh, Microsoft that we don't see on the outside that are, uh, are built this way? Great question. Yes, there are, and no, there aren't at the same time. Um, <laughs> Yes, there are in the sense that factories are, in a, in a way, not new. And so, yeah, people have used ASP.NET, for example, to build lots of things internally. Mm. Uh, some of our own MSIT stuff is built with that very heavily. Um, we have something called Platform Builder. So it turns out that Windows Mobile um, is actually built custom for each device type that it's going to be deployed on. Mm. Of course, it have to be. Yeah. Yeah. 
because you know you got lots of custom drivers and there's there's all sorts of different constraints. Some devices have more memory than others by a significant amount. Screen sizes differ. Keyboards, some are soft, some are hard. Most of them don't have a lot of memory, so right. Yeah. Different different protocol stacks, lots of other differences. So in a, in essence, what they do is they pick from a menu of configuration options, features, a smart menu that says, well, if you chose this feature, you've got to have these other two features as well. Right? It's right. not just random configuration. It's guided yeah. configuration subject to a set of constraints and well-formedness rules. From a configuration that you produce, tools then automatically assemble the right version of Windows Mobile for that device. That's very cool. That, to me, is the best software factory description I've ever heard. And it, you can understand why. The constraints are the hardware. It's not, it's not yeah. standardized hardware. It varies from device to device. And I have to vary my operating system or a platform to fit the constraints of the device. No amount of meetings in the world can change the hardware. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. But now let's talk about how much customers are willing to pay to get infinite flexibility. Mm. You know, you look at packaged applications. How many billions of dollars does SAP make? Yeah, that's pretty much the most expensive software you can get. But the way I hear SAP described, and I don't confess to be an expert of any sort in there, it's, it's a lot of manual customization. You bet it is, mm. with some, some tools to help the people who do the customization. But SAP is a software factory. It's a very, well, don't quote me on this, a crude one in a sense. Uh, it's... You know, it's it's not perhaps as polished as we'd like, and it has it has some other downsides. In fact, the, the biggest downside is a very interesting one. It's worth looking at. The biggest complaint you hear about SAP is not how much it costs to configure and install, although that's an issue, and it's not how long it takes, and people do complain about that. The biggest complaint by far is that when you deploy SAP, your business is forced into doing things its way. Right. You yep. have to conform to the app, not the other way around. And yet they have sold tens of thousands of installations at multiple millions of dollars per copy. Yep. Why? Right. Someone is willing to pay for something which is not perfectly fit the purpose. What's the alternative, too? I mean, there are very there are limited number of ERP systems out there, and they all sort of have these qualities about them. It didn't, it didn't used to be so, right? ERP systems used to be largely handcrafted. You know, SAP has sort of bubbled to the top because they offered this kind of an approach, at least in my view. Uh, is the strength of SAP exactly that conformance, that you're actually getting a better process for your business by working with this software? There's certainly some of that. and Some people have called SAP the largest IP concentrator on the planet. They hoover <laughs> up lots of, lots of IP from lots of customers, and every time they make a significant customization, they think, well, should we include this or not? in the kit, or right. should it always be hand-developed, right? And this is actually part of what goes on when you build a real factory. When you start, you stop thinking about app at a time, and you start thinking about building a reusable you know, application skeleton surrounded by tools and parts and stuff for constructing others like it, you start to make those kinds of choices. Well, do we harvest that particular feature? How often are we going to see that? How, is it worth supporting it? Do I want to take the time to build a template for it or not? Interesting side question. Does... Do you know anything about Microsoft Dynamics and uh, and how it fares factory wise? I do. SAP? And um, we're talking. Let's put it that way. Sure. Uh, factories Off the are, record. 
off the record. Well, <laughs> uh, it's okay to put that on the record. We're talking. We're talking with a lot of groups within Microsoft. Microsoft.com, the property, the web property. We're talking with you know which which owns MSDN and and uh, Live and lots of other stuff. Uh, we're talking with with Microsoft IT, which is a massive organization that runs one of the largest businesses in the world. Yeah, there's there's a lot of a lot of internal consumers. The the key for me is the change in mindset that says instead of thinking app at a time, roll up your sleeves and get it done primarily from scratch. Start thinking about harvesting knowledge, packaging that harvested knowledge, finding better ways to make it accessible to people, automating that, and giving people those packages yourself, giving yourself those packages as a starting point. And improving the package. No one says that a factory once built is static or, or, you know, rigid. Forget it. I'm going to build a factory, and I'm going to use the factory. And guess what? It's going to be wrong, guaranteed, the very first time out of the chute. But should I stop? Heavens no. I should, I should harvest the learning because there's knowledge in that. I should, you know, what typically happens is you know, we try and reuse some code. It didn't work. We say, oh, screw that, right? And the knowledge of what was unique and different is lost. Sure. I want to capture that so that the next time around, my factory is that much better, that much better fit to purpose for the particular problem space I'm after. So, so at the end of the day, what we're really talking about here is a change of mindset, learning as, as an industry, the skills required to support what we might call software product line practices. That's, that's a term that you know, sort of draws from other, other, sure. other industries. People have this notion of product lines within which you have many things that are similar and frankly, you know, a collection of skyscrapers is a product line. They'll right. all use maybe some of the same heating, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning ductwork, but arranged in different ways. You know, different sizes of of of, uh, of install, right? Different capacities, but they'll reuse a lot of the same pieces. They've all got elevators. Yes, they've all got elevators configured differently. Some you know, of them work of them. too, from what I've heard. What's that? Some of the elevators work too, from what I've heard. Mine doesn't, <laughs> but yeah. Okay, that's a, but this is all predicated on this concept that you're going to build something like this again. And I think one of the pervasive things in the software industry is this: uh, I'm never going to build anything like this again. Mm. And the key is in the word "like." How much like it does it have to be for it to be worth my while harvesting something reusable? Right. And the answer to that question, I think, comes in two parts, right? One part is, how hard is it to harvest something reusable, truly reusable? First of all, it has to be written to be reusable. Right. Uh, you know, I, I reuse just about everything I write. I mean, when, I'm, when I go off to write an application, the first thing I do is look through my list of things that I've written and see what I can reuse. And, you know, I, I don't think I'm alone in that regard. I mean, most developers will do that, especially anybody who's using object-oriented development techniques. Um, that's but that's mostly cut and paste reuse. Well, it's more like add a, add a reference and and use it. You know, build as assemblies as discrete atoms and then reuse the code. Well, so there's there's something in our book on this which we uh, borrow with acknowledgement from something Ivar Jakobsen wrote with Martin Griss. It turns out that copy paste reuse is certainly reuse, but uh, it doesn't scale. So how doesn't it scale? So let's say that we've, we, the three of us, are writing some stuff, and we've got a piece of code that we all copy from and paste and, and edit. And no, let's I think say that's that, crazy, first of all. 
Well, it's what happens. Yeah. I mean, it's what happens inside Microsoft, happens inside most companies, right? And we don't all do it consciously. We're all focused on other things. We're all busy. So over the course of time, we all end up copying and pasting the same piece of code. Now, a security defect is found in that piece of code. Guess what? We all have it. Right. And it's all different enough now that we've got to fix it different ways. That's right. So, so we say, okay, this is dumb. This doesn't scale very well. What if we instead were to have, say, Carl owned the code, and, and the rest of us will use it in binary form, and he'll, he'll you know, edit the thing and maintain it on everyone's behalf. So more of a class library approach, like Carl was saying. More like yeah. a shared project kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. So, so Carl becomes the owner of the, the shared project of this thing. Now, it so happens that Jack and Richard are both using it, and you know, Jack's application has a lot of attention from management. And it's really important. It's going to get launched out in the next PDC and lots of fanfare around it. And Richard's application right now, while it has great potential for the future, right now just isn't a hot property. Well, whose who's features are going to get preferred in Carl's library? Well, Jack's, of course. Right. Right? Uh, Not that I'm holding it, it against you, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay with that. Okay. <laughs> So we end up with the issue that, at the end of the day, Carl doesn't really have the bandwidth to support Jack and Richard and everybody else who really wants to use his library. In fact, Carl has his own application to get out the door. And at some point, he says, you know, I, I'm not going to add that feature to this particular class because, frankly, you know, I, I don't have time. I don't have time to do that. So, you know, someone gets screwed. So at the end of the day, what we do is we say, well, look, the right way to do this is to fund Carl. Let's make Carl into the, into the you know, Foo Library group. Right. He, he's he's going to own that Foo Library, and, and he'll have a group, and they'll be funded, and they'll build this library so that Jack and Richard and everyone else can use it. Okay, that's good. So what's, I mean, uh, I know this is an example, but what's wrong with source control in this case? It doesn't scale up. It just the big issue here is up. it's not just me and Jack. Five more people are now depending on this library, and, and then the list of demands is getting longer and longer. And, and how do we coordinate the changes that we're making, Source especially control? when we're releasing stuff at different times? You know, Richard is just entering a, a cycle where he wants to start making significant changes to the library for new functionality, mm. and I'm just ending a cycle where I'm focused on stability. Right. So in other words, at certain, what you're saying is at certain point the, court, the code's going to fork. Now, what I'm saying is that copy-paste reuse doesn't scale. I'm saying that you need a more formal relationship between the supplier of something reusable and the consumers. So does the library team approach work then? Yes, up to a point. The library team, if it gets funded, goes off and is able to sort of balance the different demands, and it makes releases at well-known points in time, and people negotiate as to when that'll be, right? This is pretty much the way things work within Microsoft. Yeah. Right. And that particular team releases the next version of a library, and, and other teams start aligning up to take dependencies on it, and you negotiate what features go in it, and, and life is good, up, up until the point where management says. Um, you know, that team is chewing up a lot of money, and they're not shipping any product that we can see. Right. You know, let's cut them. Let's cut heads over there and move them over here. 
Right. Well, I've got all these revenue generating products and they're making a lot of money because they're actually offloading a lot of their work on the library team that doesn't make any money. That's mm. right. Mm. And, but they don't see that very clearly. So the next step up in this maturity curve that we're walking is to do what's called a revenue allocation. You say, well, really, the library team does make money. They sure. They've got to charge for the work they do. That's exactly right. So now your library team actually has a market-driven relationship to the other teams. It Which delivers something end? tangible, and it gets money back. Okay, but then now, the other teams can also say, I choose not to buy your library. Right. I'll buy, I'll buy the competing library from group, group X over there. Right. Right? Hmm. So now you've got a market dynamic. And the market dynamic starts to create the right kinds of mechanisms for optimizing, especially when you're dealing with things that are not trivial, single-project VB apps. Yeah. You're dealing with enterprise applications with multiple parts and complex requirements. And now you have a market dynamic. And guess what? This is what we call supply chains in other industries. It's not new. Sure, no, and it sort of takes care of itself. It does. It's the yeah. it's the reason that GM doesn't manufacture their own brake rotors, right? right? And it's the reason that the brake rotor company doesn't, you know, forge its own steel, right? Right. And guess what? In the software industry, we are so far from being able to think this way. We're way back in the in the you know the era of cottage industry. We just haven't begun to to form mental and business models let alone the technology vehicles, to support this kind of supply chaining. Yeah, we're still back at the stage where i got to go dig the ore out of the ground and make my brake rotor. Of course, you got yeah. it. And, and that's why, at the end of the day, what, what's really involved here is not a, a major technical breakthrough. The templates look just like the templates we already have. The patterns look like the patterns we already have. It's, it's a different a, way of thinking about how to build software. A formalization of this reusability process that, that you've just described. Yes. And, and i got to think the big challenge here is keeping that feedback loop going, that every bit of work that I do going forward has some chance to go back to the library or to the template. Exactly. In fact, it's the same feedback loop that exists between the, the builder of an app and the business user of an app. We understand right. that feedback loop real well. We deliver the application. They say, this is broken. Fix it. This is wrong. I know you did what I said, but it's not what I wanted. <laughs> exactly. And that we understand. So let's just take that exact same model, and that's, in, in other industries, the exact model that scales up over supply chains. Consumers and suppliers are constantly negotiating requirements. But guess what? If you're negotiating requirements, you have to have a way to talk about them. Right. And we don't have that, at least not a very good one. Are we walking into UML here? No. Okay, good. <laughs> Thank God for that, yeah. Because I know you were a UML guy at one point. Oh, yeah. You got over it. I, well, I never got into it. Oh, okay. <laughs> let's, let's put it this way. There were some seeds of brilliance in what was being done with UML, but UML got flogged onto the marketplace. You know, in... in uh, it was prostituted under the marketplace in the worst possible way. Productized. Yeah, you could use that term. What it really boils down to is this. The unified modeling language is really not a language. It's a repository of multiple languages. Right. Furthermore, the languages in that repository are not well factored from each other. So if I want to take just one, in, in terms of actual bits, it's got spaghetti dependencies on all the others. 
Right. Furthermore, if I wanted to customize one of those languages because it's not exactly what I want, well, I have to use these wonky-looking things called stereotypes. What's that? Don't give me that shit. <laughs> you know, I, I want, I want the, you know, you you have this thing on here called a class. I want an entity, and I want my entity not to look like a, a class with, you know, stupid little angle brackets in it. I want it to look like an entity. Right. And and furthermore, I want my user to think of it as an entity, and I want all of his his UI gestures to be first class citizens. So that the tool feels good, he likes using it, right? It it's it has uh, that affordance that that um, um, oh, what was the author of that book used to talk about the design of everyday things? Great book. Hmm. Affordance is that 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 sort of um, quality of of things that people use that makes them a pleasure to use, right? That anticipate. So they become familiar. Yeah. So, you know, these, these little angle brackets on a class don't change it from a class to an entity. The tool has no idea what that means. It still acts like a class. You know, I, I, can't, I can't turn off certain features of it. I can't say, well, it no longer has public, private, protected, and package visibility. It, entities don't have that. Get rid of it. I can't. You know, I, I can't get rid of, of, of methods on it. I can't, I can't constrain the way it connects to other classes. But entities connect to other entities in very specific ways. If they're backed by a database. Right. So Don Norman, Design of Everyday Things. Don Norman, that's it. So it turns out that what people really do with UML is they build these ugly, ugly sets of stereotypes and tags, which they hang all over the models. And then they write custom code generators. And they say, if you just hold your nose, they hand out clothespins. If you just hold your nose while you (laughs) build your models, you know, then the code generator will spit the right thing out the back end, which you can then customize by hand, and you're, you're off and running. And a lot of people do that. Mm. Well, we're saying, well, look, if you have a custom modeling language, and if you have a custom code generator, then why not just build a custom tool Yeah. that, that has affordance? So this language is precisely right for the particular purpose to which it's going to be put whether that be you know, configuring web services on ASP.NET or um, uh, you know, describing tables in a database or whatever it might be, whatever purpose you want to put this tool to. So now we need tools that help us build tools. Of course. And that's how we get to the DSL tools. That's what they're for. But DSL tools? Domain-specific yes. language tools. Before we rush down this road, now we'll, we'll rush down this road in just a moment. Before we do, this is where all the eye candy lives, okay? But before we rush right. down the road to the eye candy... We, we have to stop and ask ourselves, how do we get here? We got here through a whole bunch of conversation. And in that conversation, we've, we've reached a point of accepting the idea that there are certain classes of problems that are going to be encountered frequently. Right. And that it makes sense to invest in something like a tool. It, it takes time and money to build a tool, but it makes sense to invest that time and money because we're going to have to solve those problems repeatedly. Yeah. Well, it's money we'll get back. That's in right. time. That's right. So that is the essence of where we're trying to go with factories. It's called systematic reuse. So I take, you know, I'm trying to envision the utilization of this. I mean, there's got to be a, a point of conversation with the domain owners so that I understand the domain. Yeah. There's got to be some architectural decisions about what resources I've got and can use to build this app. And then I apply all that information to set up my domain-specific space yes. to start building my application. That is it. And in fact, 
what we're saying is Microsoft does not have all domain knowledge in the world. No. <laughs> wow. Oh, you work there. How could anybody. you say such a thing? <laughs> Shh, it's a secret. Goodness. <laughs> the, the fact of the matter is most of the real domain knowledge lives, lives out where the customers yeah. are. You mean in the domain? In the domain. Hey, <laughs> who, who knew? <laughs> what a shock. You know, but imagine, imagine if you could empower all those customers and their service providers. You know, there's SIs out there that those customers contract with to do a lot of work on their behalf. What if you could empower those people? Again, not starting from scratch, maybe taking some pre-built factories that Microsoft supplies with some pre-built tools in them and some pre-built templates and some guidance and stuff like that. But make it really easy to customize. And right. that's got to be a hard sell, too, because, you know, we've had an hour's worth of conversation to arrive at this point. Logically, it makes perfect sense to us. But when you sit down in a meeting, do you have time to go through that whole, you know, you know what I'm saying? You want me to draw what? You know what I mean? I got some tools right here that'll, you know, let's just write it. You're of course, there's part of me right. that thinks you always end up doing that anyway. It's just a question of whether you do it halfway through the project when you're failing or at the beginning. Well, and that's why this message really resonates well with customers and with systems integrators. Systems integrators are in a zero-sum game right now. They're playing labor arbitrage with India and China, and they're losing badly. Right. And, and frankly, the Indian and Chinese systems integrators are at the head of the queue to get software factory technology because they are smart enough to see what's coming. What's coming is packaging up your IP, packaging up the, the knowledge and skills. It's, you know, app development, let's be really honest, brutally honest. It's extremely complex. There's a ton to know. And you get right. just a little bit of it wrong, and it's costly. So being able to package up a lot of that, not in a mindless way that turns developers into drones, but in a way that allows people who've done something to harvest what they know and make it available to themselves or others for rapid reuse, it makes a ton of sense. And the problem is, how do you communicate all this to an industry that's just, you know, held to leather for rolling up their sleeves and, and becoming craftsmen? We'll build it ourselves. <laughs> so this is the challenge. And frankly, the biggest pushback we get comes not from customers who pay the bills. Remember those guys? Yep. <laughs> it comes from the developers. Because you're rocking their world, man. I'm doing it. You're a disruptive force. Hey, mindless drones. They see themselves in the 1984 commercial from Apple Computer. <laughs> <laughs> Does that make you the chick with the hammer? It, it must. It happens. <laughs> what would my wife say? Because your alternative is the guy in the glasses on the screen, and you don't want to be that guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's who they think I am. Right. You know, it turns out that at the end of the day, you know, when, when we really get over sort of the, the gut-level pushback against this, that it's going to be just like going from assembly language to C. Yeah. No one's going to look back. No, and, and from C to C, plus, the same stress we had over, over object orientation and, and so on. We've done this before. Yeah. The real debate is, is this the time? And, and, yeah, is this the time, and if so, why? What are the key ingredients needed to take us to that next sort of notch on the pole? And we think, and we describe in the book and, and some of the stuff that we've written and, and done, we, we talk about what some of those key ingredients are. And it's back to the point that, that Carl made earlier. It's tools to build tools. 
we now have good tools for building tools. We can punch out in, well, we can punch out in 20 minutes a working designer. We can punch out in a matter of a week or two a tool that used to take a team of Microsoft devs, quiet now, don't tell anybody this, in a year to build. Mm. I mean, thinking in terms of like those mobile platform issues. You got it. Mm. There's tons tons, tons of, of productivity gain that come just from having a decent cut at tools to build tools in which I can actually design the information that, that my tool needs to manage, how it's presented to the user, and get you know, 80, 90% of my tool generated. I can tweak the templates, change the way it generates, and then I can write a whole bunch of handwritten code besides to say how that tool should do some things in a custom way. And at the end of the day, what I have is a powerful language that automates some piece of some process. Now, if I can right. start to put those tools together, this is where you get into what in the software factory uh, we call a schema. Software Factory has this thing in it called a schema. It's more like a database schema than an XSD. It says, okay, you can build me a language. Maybe I need two languages. How many languages do I need to solve this particular kind of problem? Mm, and, right, and, yeah. and if I had those languages, how would I use them together? Mm. That's what the schema says. It says, look, here's a model. It's a model just like all the other languages you're working with. We built, we built the software factory tools out of the software factory tools. Here is a model that shows for this particular problem space what the key set of tools is that you need, how they fit together, what information they push around, how that information is transformed from here to there or what's generated from this or whatever. And then we can start using that model as a skeleton, like, like, like decorating a Christmas tree, start to hang stuff on it. You know these patterns here for you know, front controller versus page controller? Guess what? They don't just go anywhere. They hang on that particular node in the model. That's where you right. think about this, right? And now we can start to wrap a little bit of guidance around it, not the, you know, the, the brain-dead, you know, RUP-like process that says, like, drones, you do this, then you do that. No. I want some very concrete guidance. When do I use this pattern versus that pattern? What are the trade-offs? Mm. You know? um, can you give me that, and can you contextualize it? Can you put it, can you hang it on the right? branch of that Christmas tree so that I know that when I'm over there working on that piece of the problem, I see the, 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 the set of patterns that, that have been identified as being useful here, and I can start to understand the trade-offs among them that are useful right here. Don't point me to the shelf. I've got, you know, just me personally, I've probably got six feet of patterns books and bookshelves. Right, right. You do too? Oh, what, yeah. What, yeah. What good are they, right? It's like, yeah, there's some keen, keen, keen patterns in there. I like those. And the, the ones you know best are the ones that someone's told you about or that the friend of yours wrote. But at the end of the day, you know, when you're whacking on something, how much of that stuff do you have at your fingertips? The patterns have got to be in the tool. Yeah. They've got to be there. And they've got, they've got to be on the right part of the Christmas tree. If the Christmas tree is, is sort of a map of the problem, Think, think, let's go from the metaphor of a Christmas tree that gets decorated with ornaments to a map that has stuff put on it, right? Mm. There's a map that says when you're building a, a web portal, here are the different parts of it. Here are the different it's architecture, guys. Here are the different things you need to think about. Here's the key components. Here's the different parts, okay? You need this tool over here when you're, when you're assembling web parts. You need that tool over there when you're securing a web service. You need that tool over there with this set of templates when you're generating service agents. Um, these are the pieces, and here's where they fit. Now we can step back from that problem space and look at it and say, oh, my gosh, we have an architectural model for what that kind of thing looks like. Mm. We have a set of tools that help us build it. We have, 
you know, templates that we can customize. We've got some guidance that tells us how to work with it. We have sets of patterns organized according to the right part of the map. We can yeah. rock, right? And if it's not right, we'll tweak it. Right. And keep tweaking. Now, we still got to go in and polish and plug some things in and, and find some mistakes, but we're definitely at a good starting place. That's it. And that, that map that's all decorated up with all that knowledge and that has those nice, nice little custom tools that we constructed very quickly to help automate bits and pieces of it, that becomes something in our, our kit bag. And we keep honing and refining it. And the next time we go build a web portal, we drag it out. We say, okay, let's, let's get started. Oh, this doesn't look right. Let's fix that. So this thing now becomes something that accumulates knowledge. Okay, so DSL tool writing tools out yes. there. Can you point us to any resources of good starting points? Tons. Well, there's an MSDN site on it, and there's lots of information, blog postings, there's a forum, there's What's it called? articles. Um, what's it called? <laughs> Great question. If you search on MSDN for DSL, you'll find it. Okay. Um, we'll find it. We'll add a link. Um, the, the bottom line here is that there's, there's a lot of stuff available now. So back to the question that Richard asked, is this the right time? Well, maybe. But, you know, we're not going to sit and wait until everything is perfect. We're pushing into this. We're exploring it. We're getting a feeling for it. We're learning about it. We're building some tools. We're building some packaging technology. Uh, we're building some integration technology. We're, we're starting to take some of the content that we've got around patterns and practices and re reorganize it this way. We're starting to take Visual Studio Team System and say, what if instead of a methodology template that lays down something that looks like RUP, you had something that laid down the architecture for your application? That's the kind of stuff we're doing. That's what factories are all about. Do you think uh, there will be a point in time where the role, where the, there will be a lot fewer developers out there, where the you know the the role of the developer will will shrink to the point where uh, you know they'll It'll sort of be a commodity. You know, it's it's a great question, and I, I'm glad you asked it, Carl. It is always it's asked question. by the developer community. But you know what? Um, when I think back on how many folks were writing assembly language and building apps like Excel, or what was it at the time, VisiCalc, in assembly, right? right. And when I think of the number of people who now build apps in C Sharp and Java. Well, yeah, I, I, I hear you. I hear you, but we're at a different point in the curve now, though, right? I mean, the, the hardware was just coming into its own where it could do the kinds of things that it can do now. I don't know about that. I, I think we've been on that curve since the 1940s. Yeah, there's always more. The more you do, the more there is. Exactly. It's not a zero-sum game. You know, it's, uh, there's a scarcity mentality here. Oh, no, if we automate the stuff we know how to do today, we'll be out of work tomorrow. No, if we automate the stuff we know how to do today, you know, the, the level of demand is going to go significantly higher. Have we seen all that we can see from software development? I don't think I so. think not. Oh, I certainly don't, no. Hey, I found the, uh, the, the domain-specific language tool site on Microsoft. I shrinksterized it. It's at shrinkster.com slash M0S, Mike Zero Sierra. And it's it's a whole site specific to domain specific language tools. Excellent. Yes. And it links to the Software Factory site. Yes, it does. And it links to another site for something called the Guidance Automation Toolkit. And yeah. the, the Guidance Automation Toolkit, which we affectionately refer to as GAT, is 
a little bit of a taste of packaging technology. It gives you a feeling for what factories will be like when we get done with our next turn of the crank, what we're currently working on. Um, with, a, with a guidance package, you can bundle up a bunch of scripts, which are called recipes. They're very easy to write. They're a combination of code and XML that automate stuff in VS. Hmm. They're like very fast typists. Sweet. Nice. And in addition to that, you can put, put code snippets and ordinary VS templates and documentation, a bunch of other stuff into a package, bundle it all up, and give it to somebody. And they can install it and use it, and it will give them a lot of assistance in building something. Very nice. And I see your blogs there, and Stuart Kentz, and uh, Steve Cook. You got it. Yeah, this is, seems like ground central for uh, DSL. Jack, that seems like a good place to end the show on. Um, what a great conversation. Thanks for taking us through the whole curve, as you say. Well, well, thank you. It's been a blast. Yeah. I really feel like I got a grounding in software factories now. Absolutely. Very cool. And, I don't know uh, what to do about the name. It still sucks, but hey, it's a great <laughs> idea. <laughs> All right. Well, and I can't wait to start reading your blog, too. Thanks. Jack Greenfield has been our guest as an architect for Enterprise Frameworks and Tools at Microsoft. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next week on Not Morons. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a